We're going to finish Titus tonight. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And we'll get started in our study of the last six verses here in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. And we begin in verse 9. Titus chapter 3. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We're grateful for the chance to have studied this short but great book, this letter from the Apostle Paul, because it's your Holy Spirit that has written these words. And so we look at these last final instructions, and we hope to glean much, and it's by your Spirit that we'll do that. So we dedicate this time to you in your son's name. Amen. A now viral video shot from the peak of the Mont Blanc Massif, a section of the Alps between France and Italy, shows both sides of a razor-thin, sloping mountain peak. And it's from the perspective of a climber at the very top of this mountain. And he shows both sides back and forth over and over. Now, besides the nope factor of this video, what immediately jumps out at you off the screen is the fact that one side of the mountain is lush and green and snow-capped. And the other side is dry and brown and sparse. One mountain peak with two completely different climates on each side. Now, this video depicts an amazing view you and I don't see every day. But apparently this phenomenon that creates what's seen in this video is actually something quite common to meteorologists at least. These two different climates are created by what's called a rain shadow, a phenomenon probably better explained by a climatologist or a geology major. It involves winds passing up the front side of the mountain, the windward side, over the mountain peak, and it traps the moisture on the front side of the mountain. As the winds blow, they cool and rise and form clouds on the front side of the mountain. 
leaving one side of the mountain teeming with flora and fauna of all kinds as the winds pass over the other side, leaving all the moisture behind that drives out the other side, leaving it sparse and desert-like. So from the Mojave Desert to even our very own Death Valley, this phenomenon occurs all over the world. Two sides of the same mountain with entirely different climates. Paul's instructions to Titus in this final few verses gives us a picture of the mountain peak that is the Christian's heart. In this unique view, in the end of this book, at the very peak of this short letter, we see what the Christian heart should look like in two vastly different situations. On one side, you have the desert of doctrinal division. And on the other side, you have the lush green pastures of gospel partnership. It's the Christian heart we see here. In the face of controversy and camaraderie, when confronted with false teachers, and then in love toward faithful friends in the gospel. Two vastly different situations in God's church, yet the same Christian heart. A heart that is devoted to gospel progress, God's work of salvation all over the world. A heart that holds fast to his truth in the face of opposition. A heart that longs to support and send workers for the harvest. A heart that readily recognizes God's work in other people. Our hearts, if we're honest, are so drawn during college to our own mission, our own enterprise, our own resume, our own agenda, schedule, Google Calendar. We have our own thing going on. And so it's hard to see sometimes beyond our hand on the plow. Well, this passage will help us to step back, to zoom out and see the bigger picture, to see that in the example of these two extremely different climates on the two sides of the mountain, that is the Christian heart, but then every other climate in between as well, in God's church, God is always at work. Gospel progress is being made. And all the while, the Christian's heart is the same. It's the same. It's devoted to gospel progress. This passage confronts our, our nearsightedness, our insensitivity, our cold-heartedness to how God is advancing the gospel through different people, in different situations, at all times and in all things, God is working. And so tonight we'll see that in every situation, the Christian heart is devoted to gospel progress. In every situation, the Christian heart is devoted to gospel 
progress. And we see that example of two different situations, two extremely different climates. First, the Christian heart in doctrinal division, in doctrinal division, verses 9 to 11. Paul shows us here that in these three verses, the Christian's heart amidst doctrinal division is one that holds fast to sound doctrine, and it's one that trusts God is working. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As we've seen already in this letter, the churches in Crete are facing false teaching at the hands of men, Paul calls, chapter 1, insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. And Paul has already warned us about these men and their teaching as well in this letter. Well, here at the close of this letter, Paul shows us the Christian heart in the face of this unsound doctrine, this false teaching. That is to say, before, Paul was saying, this is these men, this is their teaching. Silence them. Well, here we're talking about the same people with the same kind of false teaching, but Paul shows us what we ought to look like in the face of that. So this heart is a heart that holds fast to God's word. It avoids false teaching and trusts that he's still at work despite what it seems. Despite the fact that these false teachers, these empty talkers and deceivers are spreading like gangrene. Last week, we looked at the gospel witness that we are to have as Christians. If you remember, one of warm, winsome, fruitfulness, a testimony that is what Paul calls excellent and profitable for people because it's a crystal clear picture of the goodness and loving kindness found in the gospel that God shows toward us. Well, here, Paul contrasts that sound doctrine of the gospel with four descriptions of unsound doctrine that have caused conflict and disruption in the Cretan churches. And Paul says, very plainly, avoid these teachings, have nothing to do with them. And what's the reason why? Look at the end of verse 9. They are unprofitable and worthless. Literally the exact opposite of a, God, a good gospel testimony. A good, sound gospel witness is profitable and excellent and profitable for all people. This kind of teaching is unprofitable and worthless. So first Paul talks about foolish controversies, foolish controversies. These are seemingly controversial questions that maybe don't even have an answer. They're things that these men are bringing up to just stir things up, to provoke people. The word Paul uses here, these are foolish. Literally, a translation could be stupid. Look at 2 Timothy 2.23 with me. Just flip back a page or two. Paul uses the same term, and a similar instruction is given to the church in Ephesus with young Timothy. 
He says there, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Same phrase there. You know that they breed quarrels. And so Paul here in Titus is saying, avoid, avoid foolish controversy. Secondly, he talks about genealogies. And we all know there are genealogies in the Bible. He's not saying avoid reading them, even though maybe sometimes you feel that way. He's saying the, the twisting of genealogies that these men are doing, the, they're doing this to squeeze out counterfeit spiritual meaning that's not actually there. And this is ignorant speculation about meanings of names or adding up the numbers of generations to get to a certain number that they think is significant or prophetic. The big error here with genealogies isn't linguistic or mathematical. It's adding spiritual meaning where there isn't. For Timothy 1, Paul says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Avoid, avoid genealogies. Third, Paul talks about dissensions. These are this is strife, or these are quarrels, doctrinal differences, divergences in views. These false teachers are leading others astray from the true church. When I think of dissensions, I think of strife or quarrels. I think of people you and I both know. Now, these aren't false teachers, but they have the same spirit of division in them. You know what I think of? I think of cage-stage Calvinists. I think of arrogant amillennialists. I think of battling internet book reviewers. I think of passive-aggressive bloggers. The same spirit of division. They're heading down a path that even in right doctrine and spirit is causing strife, leading to quarrels. First Timothy 6, verse 4, Paul writes this. Describes a false teacher. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. Avoid. Avoid dissensions. And lastly, Paul talks about quarrels about the law. This is infighting over the law. We talked about this a little bit because Paul calls these empty talkers and deceivers those of the circumcision party that is people who thought that circumcision was required for true salvation not to paul master of the law himself growing up as a pharisee of pharisees he wrote the book of romans and we understand that in romans paul says the law is holy and righteous and good we delight in the law of god in our inner man don't we Paul also says in Romans 7, we have as Christians in Christ died to the law. 
And so what Paul's saying here is there's no need to quarrel about the meaning or significance or the role of the law in the Christian's life. It's a tutor. It's of value, but it does not save. And so Paul is saying here, especially with those of the circumcision party who do not understand salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from the law, do not engage. Avoid quarrels about the law. Avoid. Avoid these four categories of doctrine because they are unprofitable and worthless. I want you to turn to Genesis 5. I want you to see that there can be value. There is value to all of God's word. Maybe you just started a Bible reading plan and you think Genesis 5. Or no. Genesis 5 is the descendants of Adam from the time of Adam until Noah. If you look at the names in this passage, you see God's faithfulness from generation to generation. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. God is faithful. He's faithful. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, each of these names means something. Literally by definition. Definition. My name, Matthew, not Hebrew, but it means gift from God. Every one of your names means something or has some kind of significance, and so do all of these names. Adam, for example, means Kyle de Guzman. You got this one? Man or mankind. He's got it. Seth, appointed. Enosh, subject, subject to death or mortal. Kenan or Canaan, sorrowful. Mahalalel, from the presence of God. That's what that means. Jared, one comes down. Enoch, dedicated. Methuselah means dying, he shall send. Lamech means to the poor and lowly. And Noah, after a long list of names, rest or comfort. If you put those names together in order, they're all born that way in God's providence. You can string them together to form a couple kind of cool sentences that don't make a whole lot of grammatical sense, but they're kind of cool. Adam, Seth, Enoch, so on. Mankind is appointed to death and therefore is sorrowful. But from the presence of God, Rep. Jared now, one comes down dedicated. In dying, he shall send to the poor and lowly rest or comfort. It's the gospel in Genesis 5. It's amazing to see what God can do just in a list of names, a prophecy about Jesus. I, I know it's a little bit of a stretch, but 
If you're going to stretch, you, you may as well stretch for the gospel, stretch for Jesus, right? Now, if you haven't caught on by now, Tim Huang and Tim Peters were going to come grab me off the stage for that. It's a little bit funny until I tell you this. I have a good friend who went to a church that shall not be named, not just because they preached to this, but shall not be named. He went to this church because the guy went to the master seminary. This was after college. He decided, yeah, I've moved on. I need to find a good church. I'm going to go to this church. This guy's great. He goes to the master seminary. This guy's preaching through Genesis. And I, I mean, Kimmy can tell you, I practiced this week because I, I could not keep it together. It's just too ridiculous. He did that spiel and he, he did his, come on church. And it exploded. This is what Paul is saying to avoid. Be careful. You think when you hear those four things in Titus, that you have enough of a spiritual radar to know when something fishy is happening. And maybe you do right now. Sounds like most of you guys do. And praise God for that. But what about in 10 years? What about when it's the only church in town? What about when it's the church just across the street and you just go there when you wake up late? Avoid foolish controversies, avoid speculation about genealogies, avoid these kinds of debates and dissensions and quarrels about God's law, legalistic mentalities. Have some discernment as you approach new seasons with new churches. And don't take it for granted when someone's got a TMS lapel pin. I'm a graduate myself, and I would say that. Measure everything that you hear from God's word, even here at Grace Church, against the gold standard that is the word of God. Learn good hermeneutics. Read books about how to study the Bible. Talk to your small group. Talk to your small group leader about how to study the Bible in a way that is profitable and excellent, not that is unprofitable and worthless. Hold fast to what is true. Be like Bereans who receive the word with all eagerness and examine the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not only are we to avoid these kinds of conflicts or doctrines or controversies, we are as Christians to respond appropriately to the people themselves who initiate these things. Look at verses 10 and 11 back in Titus, let's get away from Genesis 5, like, quickly. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. The person who stirs up this kind of division, the word here is Hereticos, the word we get from that is heretic. It's a factious person, someone who 
rips people apart and causes division from the church. The idea of separating people from the flock and away from the body of Christ. Paul says, warn him once and then twice. Notice even in the language of these warnings, there is pause. There's weight to this situation. There's patience. You see, despite such arrogant, harmful arguing and doctrinal division, we as Christians are to have a deeply rooted devotion to God's word that knows what it says and will not be dissuaded by such falsehood. But it's also a heart that exercises at least some level of patience and long-suffering. Because this is a person that God might save. If you look at Matthew 18 and how the church patiently deals with sinners who are unrepentant, or Galatians 6.1, the restorative heart in gentleness of an erring brother. Or remember back to chapter 1, verse 13, says there, therefore rebuke them sharply. Why? That they may be sound in the faith. And I think we're seeing that same heart here in Titus 3. The same heart of urgent warning and correction, but that is patient to see how God will work in even a very difficult situation in the church. This is the Christian heart toward those who are doctrinally errant, a heart that longs to see this kind of person even cease his divisive, destructive behavior and turn to Jesus. But after two warnings, two attempts to correct and rebuke, it's only then that Paul tells Titus, have nothing more to do with him. Avoid. It's a cognate. It's a similar word to the word avoid. In verse 9, so we're to avoid these foolish controversies and the rest of those doctrines, but we're also to avoid this kind of person after two patient urgent warnings because that person verse 11 is warped they're twisted and they're sinful as well reminds me of chapter 1 verse 10 they're empty talkers and deceivers or chapter 1 verse 16 they profess to know god but they deny him by their works this person is insistent on errant doctrine and now devolving to the, to the point of division, separating from the church and taking others along with them. And so Paul is telling Titus here, avoid this person. Both for the unity of the church, but also then in hopes that God will show this person in their time away from the body of Christ, the error of their way. It's the first of the two gospel goodbyes that we see. We're saying goodbye to this person because they're errant, but hopeful that God will work. This is the Christian's heart in the face of doctrinal division. One of firm belief in God's truth, 
with all discernment and proper interpretation and steadfastness in truth. But the Christian heart here is also one of confidence that God's truth will prevail. It stands forever, even against the attacks of divisive people. So whether God uses these two warnings to save a false teacher or in that stand for truth, the church has nothing more to do with that person, and God's church is kept pure and safe from attack, this is the Christian's heart, no matter the outcome, confident in God's word, and confident that God is at work. The Christian's heart is devoted to gospel progress, even in the face of doctrinal division. Secondly, we see the Christian's heart is devoted to gospel progress in gospel partnership, in gospel partnership, verses 12 to 15. In this part of the passage, we see that the Christian heart in gospel partnership is that the Christian heart is devoted to supporting ministry efforts first, and then also that it cultivates brotherly affection. It's devoted to supporting ministry efforts and it's devoted to cultivating brotherly affection. First here, we see the Christian heart in supporting ministry efforts. Look at verse 12. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Remember here that to Paul, Titus is a true child in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 4. He has instructed Titus in ministry all throughout this book on the island of Crete. And now Paul is saying, Titus, before you know it, you're going to move on. I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you, and they will take your place. So as much as there seems for Titus to do on the island of Crete in this book, he's got a lot of work. Paul is saying you're going to move on and God's work will continue in another brother. Now, nothing's really known about Artemis, but Tychicus is mentioned in Acts 20, verse 4, who, along with Trophimus from the church in Asia, went with Paul to Jerusalem to deliver the gift, the, the famous gift that they had collected for the church. So if even by brief mention that Tychicus is useful for ministry and at least trustworthy to handle a financial gift this is an indication of artemis as well both of these men are of use to paul and in some way they can fill in titus's shoes on the island of crete they're useful for ministry so the implication here is that they're going to take over titus's work on crete They'll continue his labor, establishing elders, silencing false teachers, instructing Cretan Christians to live out sound lives that accord with sound doctrine. Titus is to meet Paul at Nicopolis. Now, if you open a Bible dictionary and look up Nicopolis, there are nine entries. Because Nicopolis is everyone's favorite shoe brand, Nike, and Polis, meaning city, victory city, a landmark to the conquest of the Greco-Roman Empire. This most likely is the Nicopolis at the west coast of Greece, 
If you think about the rest of the New Testament and Paul's own words in the book of Romans, he wants the gospel to go west, right? To Spain. And so this most likely is the Nicopolis at the west coast of Greece. And here's Paul's strategy for the winter. It's going to be impossible to travel by boats. And we want to move west, this instinct that we have in Romans here. And we want to reach areas that we haven't reached before. And Titus, having proven to be useful, even in these other instances in the New Testament, in Galatians as well, as we've seen, but also here in Titus even, he needs to be a part of Paul's plans. He needs a strategy session. We have fall retreat. Paul has winter retreat to plot and to plan and to pray in Nicopolis for gospel progress. The way that Paul is talking here is very much an expectation of Titus's intentions. He is to do his best to meet him. He anticipates Titus's heart toward him as he says this, that he will indeed make his best effort to meet him there because they both long to see the gospel go west, to spread, for the gospel to reach the Greco-Roman world and go beyond to even Spain. And so Paul's plans and Titus's plans are driven by a desire for gospel progress. You see, if you were Titus, or if I were Titus, I would say, I have so much to do here still. I'm irreplaceable. My small group of elders I'm trying to establish in these different churches needs me. The ministry team to that one city in Crete, They need my leadership. Well, Paul is saying, God wants us here in Nicopolis to strategize, to think, to pray for the next stage in gospel progress. And he's almost assuming of Titus, expecting of Titus that he's going to do it. And why? Because they're both driven by gospel progress. Our plans are too often simply just that, our plans, our desires, what we want to do in this next stage, the places we want to see, the ways we want to use what God has given us, what our passions are, the ways we want to serve. But the Christian's heart above all else is that Christ be proclaimed, proclaimed for sinners to turn from idols to serve a living God. We ought to be willing to do whatever is needful for more people in more places to know Jesus. Look at verses 13 and 14. We see more of that heart unpacked. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul talks about two other faithful friends, Zenos 
He's either a Roman jurist or an expert in Jewish law. And because his name is Greek, he's more likely he's a Roman, a Roman jurist. But then Apollos, a common, a commonly known or a, a well-known name, Acts 18 describes him as an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately about the things concerning Jesus, even though he only knew the baptism of John. And Paul describes his ministry with Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. Just a name can have so much encouragement, example, inspiration to us to be like Apollos. Apollos is on equal footing in ministry to Paul. He has been and will be used greatly of God for the gospel. And Paul wants Titus and the Cretan Christians to support these men, give them all that they need, see that they lack nothing. In verse 14, Paul tacks on that reminder of what he's already said. Christians are to learn, let our people learn or be learning, an ongoing thing, to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. You see, Zenos and Apollos are shining examples, not just of ministry, of usefulness, of fervency and spirit in their concern for other Christians. They are examples here of urgent need. They're gospel ministers who need partnership. This is, this is an easy opportunity. This is the two-inch putt. This is the wide-open layup. Paul is saying, don't close your hearts to these men. They need your help. You have the resources. And so act. See that they lack nothing. I think of our brother David. He's in Malawi, or at least on his way today. He's a guy who who has urgent need with a baby on the way and a faithful wife, and they want to go serve Jesus in Malawi. There are name after name after name in our church, missionaries, but also seminarians, and also seniors graduating who have needs, financial, emotional, and all other kinds of support. And we ought to believe in the, God, the work that God will do through all of these people and do everything we can to see that they lack nothing. This kind of thing probably includes a spot on the couch and hot food off the tasting menu and probably a financial gift of some kind. But this kind of support, this gospel progress partnership begins in the heart. It's a heart that longs to see faithful people succeed in ministry. It's a heart that recognizes the gifting of other people and how it could be far exceeding even your own. 
It's a heart that sees beyond the material and through the lens instead of kingdom work. It's a heart that understands that for it to hurt our pocketbook a little bit or our boba habit, that it is worth it because it's nothing in comparison to the immeasurable riches of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus. We so often have a, have a monopoly mentality. We, see, we think college years are the due diligence it takes to be able to have that opportunity to choose your monopoly piece. I always chose the dog or the race car. God forbid you get the, the, the iron or the thimble, right? Last choice. Doesn't even fit on my thumb. And so you finish college, and every two weeks you pass go and collect $200. And we're investing in cryptocurrency and houses and hotels, green and red. And we're playing this game of life, Monopoly. We're monopolizing. And supporting ministry can be that community chess card or chance card that we dread support missions $75 give offering because you have a good job $225 give a gift to a friend whose child is sick $200 We dread it. We don't want to land on that space that makes us pay the luxury tax, right? But all along in our hearts, we, GOC, have been playing the wrong game. We're chasing the wrong things. God's economy is not paper money or houses or Ethereum. God's economy is that of mercy and grace, which he has poured out freely on all of us and we would do well to examine our vocation our resources our time our money and our lifestyle to help others see the mercy and the grace of jesus that he pours out so freely on all of us for all who would believe you see while the world wallows in wanderlust the christian heart longs to see the gospel travel far and wide while the world builds up net worth like gary v the christian heart seeks to lay up treasures in heaven while the world focuses on success and career and hustle the christian's heart is dialed in on contentment in christ and on ministering to people, and enabling others to minister to people. The Christian heart is devoted to gospel progress. This is the Christian heart. For some of you, it might change your career. For some of you, it might even just change your summer plans, or how you plan to use your vacation days. Or it'll affect your finances, or at least your prayers. It'll change how you view and interact with people around you as they come and they go in ministry. And you think you're the only faithful one. Well, God uses other people. 
It'll affect how you view other churches, like-minded, and other people who serve alongside you. The Christian heart is devoted to gospel progress, and sometimes that's outside of you. Be devoted to gospel progress. Look at verse verse 15, and we see even more of that Christian heart in this gospel partnership, just spilling out all over the page. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Paul sending final greetings to these believers who are with Titus. And he knows that the believers who are with Titus feel the same way. They would say the same. He knows that they, as he says, love us in the faith. There is here a sweet mutual recognition of the love between Christians. Perhaps Christians who have never even met before at this time, separated by lifestyle and culture, sea and land, but united by the hope of eternal life, brought together by the salvation that is for all people, bound by the common faith that is in accord with sound doctrine. Christians in Crete and Christians in Ephesus, Christians in Los Angeles and New York and Malawi and San Jose and Seattle and Wisconsin all have this truth written on their hearts. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Like the instinct of birds going south for winter, or true Bruins for life who know when and how to eight clap, or the impulse to hit the snooze button immediately. We as Christians are hardwired to love one one another no matter what. To love all those who are in the faith. Here, there is no spirit of superiority. There is no judgment or jealousy. No drama here. No comparison. No competition. But instead, brotherly affection and Christian charity toward each other a readiness to acknowledge God's mighty work in the, loves, in the lives of other believers in a different place in their growth and maybe in a different place on this planet. And sometimes in ways that looks different than it did in your life. So it is in this spirit of common bond that we have in Jesus, Paul ends this letter. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. This is a prayer that the grace of God would be with Titus and the Cretan Christians, that the sovereign and sustaining grace of God would be present in their lives. It should be our prayer for others who follow Jesus, that God's saving grace would be continually evidenced in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. It should be our prayer for others who love God, that his grace would train them and 
that they would rest in his unchanging love through turmoil and trials and temptation. It should be our prayer for other Christians that the grace of God would give them hope as we await the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It should be our prayer for other believers that the grace of God would show them over and over, we are his by his mercy. It should be our prayer, grace be with you all. We must recognize that God is working in the lives of other believers. We must have an unshakable confidence that God, having begun a work in you and in other believers, he would graciously continue it until grace calls us home. This is Titus, the 1,000-word essay. The book that has called us to respond to the grace of God that has appeared in the person and work of Jesus and that we must live out sound lives and a sound witness in accord with sound doctrine amidst the Cretan culture around us. And so as we close this year and part ways, whether it be for the summer or whether it be for this next season in life, would our hearts be what we see in this passage. Hearts that burn with longing for gospel progress, that others would know and love and worship Jesus, that we would have grace-filled eyes, eager to see that God will build his church, that God will work in the lives of those who love him. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. This book has been instructive to our hearts because it is your word. We've seen through and through your grace and your mercy, your loving kindness toward us as sinners and saved by your grace as believers, that it continues, it trains us, it gives us hope. And it reminds us continually that we are yours. And so, God, would this truth resonate even tonight in the lives of all those who love you, those in this room. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. And in your son's name, we pray. Amen.